Well, good morning. Hey, if you got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. We're going to pick up from the exact same text that we were in last week. I want to look at it uh, once again. So if you're you know, keeping score at home, that means we're already a week behind in our series. But that's okay. We're only two weeks in. So we'll see where, where we go from here. Um, what we're doing in this series is... The title of it is, This is God's Church. It's a statement, a value statement that we've had since the beginning, and we're kind of explaining what that means um, as a church, how it's not just a statement that we put on a shirt, um, that it, it really is how we operate around here. And in this series, what I'm doing is I'm walking through uh, different houses or churches that can be built that actually contain an uncontainable God. I want to start this morning by just revisiting Isaiah chapter 66, uh, which says this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? This is God speaking and he's looking out at his people and he's saying, hey, what kind of house are you going to build for me? What kind of church, if we use our language, are you going to build for me? And this idea of house and build is all throughout the scriptures. And we know that unless the Lord built the house, that it be built in vain. But that does not negate our responsibility as co-builders under Christ's headship. He's the master builder. And then we, underneath him, build a house for him. And I talked about five houses that are false houses. The first one that we're in right now is the powerless house. And the powerless house is indeed powerless because it has a weak foundation. It's built on a foundation other than a true biblical full understanding of Christ as laid out in the scriptures. And from that faulty foundation, the church has no power. Today, what I want to do is I want to look at Jesus's simple statement of I will build my church. For I think in that statement, it teaches us a few things about Jesus, the builder. Things that, uh, and as we learn these things about Jesus, the builder, then they should also be things that are in us as the micro builders. I don't know what that phrase is. Junior builder, whatever word you want to use. That as Christ builds, then we ought to build. Build a house for him. A house that does what he wants his house to do. Or as we say it around here, the church that Jesus came to plant. And so that's what we're doing in this series. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back on podcast or, or YouTube uh, and catch up with us um, as all of these kind of build up on each other. Today, again, we're going to look at this one statement, I will build, this is Jesus speaking, I will build my church. And we're going to start with what is it that Jesus wanted to build? Because what you're building reveals, well, dictates how you want to build it. It also tells you something about the person who wanted the thing built, and then you build something so that it can um, accomplish a certain function. And so it starts with, well, what did he say he was going to build? Because then that'll help us understand the function. It'll also help us understand how to build it, and then it'll help us understand the one who wanted all of that done. Make sense? Good. He said, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. Now, this word ecclesia, uh, to the disciples listening in, was uh, a word that they were familiar with, but they were not familiar with it in religious connotations. They would have been familiar with the word ecclesia as a secular movement, almost a quasi-government entity that was an assembly of citizens that informed culture, didn't conform to culture. And so what would happen is the ecclesia would gather and they would discuss the um, events of the day and then they would make decisions and that would then kind of sweep its way through their little civilization. That was the ecclesia. And Jesus notably says, I will build my ecclesia. He does not say, which he could have said, which would have been really easy to say, I will build my temple. Because they would have gone, I get that. They knew what a temple was. He could have said, I will build my synagogue. But he doesn't say that either. The synagogue was just like the local expression of the temple where the saints would gather to worship and to hear teaching. He does not say, I will build my temple. He does not say, I will build my synagogue. He says, I will build my ecclesia. He uses a word they were familiar with, but he's clearly trying to teach them what it is that he wants to see this thing function as. If I told you I wanted to build a house you wouldn't understand the functionality of that. If I said, I want to build a McDonald's, you would understand that you don't live at McDonald's. It serves a different function. 
Jesus said, I want to build my ecclesia, an assembly of people gathered together around a common belief to inform, not conform, to culture. Now, I want to look in at what this teaches us about Jesus, what it teaches us about this thing that Jesus wanted to build. Because by saying ecclesia and not saying temple or synagogue, it's as if Jesus is saying, because the function of this thing I want to see created will not be contained by space. How many people can you fit into the building? Some people think that Solomon's temple was only 3,500 square feet. Many of you probably have houses bigger than 3,500 square feet. Can't be contained by space and size. This thing that Jesus wanted to build can't be contained by a location, as in you have to go to that place in order for it to properly function. By not saying temple or synagogue, he was saying uh, this isn't something that's going to be contained by a specific time every day or by rituals or patterns of the past. Had he said temple or synagogue, we would have assumed all of those things. But by saying ecclesia, it's as if Jesus was saying, what I'm going to build, and I will be the one to build it, is a fluid, ever-growing entity that exists to inform culture and to bring transformation into it. And it's not contained by size or space. Later on in Matthew chapter 18, by the way, Jesus only uses the word church three times. He didn't talk about it all that often. And so when he does talk about it, it's really important to understand what he said. And so uh, later in Matthew 18, Jesus says that uh, he, he copies what he said in Matthew 16 about the loosing and the binding. But what he says is where two or three of you are gathered, there I am also. And what Jesus is saying in that moment is a, um, a, a clear kind of cultural play to the Roman Empire understanding that where two or three Roman citizens were gathered, there the power of the empire or the emperor rested. And so when Jesus said that, he was calling on that same idea, connecting it back to this word ecclesia and saying, where two or three of you are gathered, there you stand in the authority of the ultimate emperor Christ. And there you can have church. There my presence can be and it can grow and it can go and it can move and it can accomplish all of the things that I wanted to accomplish right there in the ecclesia where two or three are gathered. Now over time, of course, centuries. And by the way, where this series is not ending is us selling this building, abandoning it, and living and having church in your house, okay? So let me just cut to the end. That's not where this is ending, okay? Because I don't think that's what Christ meant either. And I don't think anything that we do on a Sunday morning is bad, otherwise we wouldn't do it, right? What we want to understand is how over time the structure and the understanding of church might contain an uncontainable God. And if we go back to what did God have in mind and we tie into that more, how it might release an uncontainable God. And so that's what Jesus had in mind. I mean, that's why he used that word, I will build my movement that will inform culture. And if there's two or three people there, go on and maybe ask the question, well, how did it work for him? Really well. Like thousands were added. And then later on in Acts, it said every day people were being added. Like just every day. Why? Because two or three were there and they're like, it's church. Let's add some people. Every day. Thousands. In Ephesus, hundreds of thousands of people lived in the town of Ephesus. I believe it was after just a few week period, it said that the entire city had heard the gospel. Imagine how many times we would have to run out the Huntington Center to do that. It worked really well. And then Jesus says about this thing, this ecclesia, this movement of people that would, that would inform culture and would spread the message that it was um, unified around, which was simply the message of the gospel. He says of this, I'll build it. I will build it. And so I want to help us understand that phrase because I think it teaches us something about Jesus. When he says, I will build my church, I think the first thing it teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus is deeply concerned about his church. 
He's deeply concerned about it. Because when you say that you're going to build something, what happens? You become deeply concerned about it. If you're carrying the weight of responsibility for something, whether it's a hobby, it's a work, it's a raising of a child, whatever it might be, when you're like, I am ultimately responsible, then you become concerned about that thing. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, it tells me that he's deeply concerned about his church, which means that we, as his builders, co-laborers, ought to be deeply concerned about the state of the church. Christ is concerned about the church. We ought to be concerned about the church. Christ calls it his bride. He died for it. He ascended into heaven so that it would be planted. Christ cares about his church. He's deeply concerned about it. And so should we, are you? Are you concerned about the state of the church? Are you concerned about its, uh, its ability to still operate? Are you concerned about its longevity? Are you concerned about, uh, is it properly um, funded to do what it needs to do? Are you concerned about the church, the movement of Christ, having everything that it needs to have as Christ is? When Christ says uh, that, that he will build it and, and so he's concerned about it, I think part of that that he's saying is I'm taking ultimate responsibility. And the good news about Christ taking ultimate responsibility is that means that we don't have to take ultimate responsibility. And that is good. It doesn't mean we don't take responsibility, but it means that we don't have to take ultimate responsibility. It means that we don't have to carry the weight of something that we weren't meant to carry. In 1 Peter 4, 8, particularly talking about the weight of church leadership, Peter says, cast your cares upon the Lord. Now, it's a great verse. Many of us use it. We put it on coffee cups, and we like to apply it to every area of our lives. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but in its original context, it was particularly talking about the weight of church leadership. And what Peter was saying to all of the future pastors and people in ministry is at some point in time when you feel like you can't carry the weight of what it is that you're doing or the movement of God across the world, don't worry, you weren't supposed to. You weren't supposed to. He's much better equipped to carry the weight of it. And he's the one who said he would build it. When Jesus takes ultimate responsibility for his church, the good news for me as a pastor is it means I don't have to build my identity on the growth and income of the church. Because I'm not the one ultimately responsible for it. He is. It doesn't mean I don't want to be a faithful steward. Paul calls us to that. It doesn't mean that any of you shouldn't want to be faithful stewards and not care. But it means that the ultimate responsibility falls on Christ. And that's way better than to fall in on me or our elders. And see, what happens is when we distort this understanding or we forget this understanding and we think we, I'm using like the collective we to describe maybe people who are in church leadership, they think that the ultimate responsibility falls on us, then we have to start making decisions based on income and growth. When you're not, when you're just a steward, you just make decisions on obedience. Is it right? Preach it. Is it true? Say it. Not, well, how will it affect our attendance? How will it affect our income? It's a very freeing principle. It means I can go to bed and say, was I faithful to the text? Good, that's my job. How do people respond? Great, that's God's job. He will build his church. On the income side, you know, that James particularly warns. This is one of the very few warnings, particularly given to, like, the church. But one of them is this in James. He calls it the sin of partiality. You know, know what this is? In James, it's, like, really clear. He's like, don't treat the rich people better than the poor ones. That's just what it says. He says, the moment you treat the rich people better than the poor ones, um, you have bad motives. It's kind of like he's saying, you're no longer leading a church then. Now you're leading a business. He says, don't do that. It's one of the few like, specific warnings given to church leadership on, 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 how you, um, on how to lead. He says, don't fall into the sin of partiality. It's great. That means it's easy then when, when somebody says, hey, I think we should do this, and if I don't do this, and if you don't do this, then like, if you don't add a choir, I'm out of here. See ya. Not adding a choir. Let me say it this way, actually. I have no intentions currently under my current and present convictions to add a choir to our church. Asterisk, now I can add a choir later and not be a liar. Okay. But see, don't you, 
I mean, haven't you seen how when these things get distorted a little bit, some, some of these things start popping up, right? And I'll just be honest, sometimes then, like for me, like I, I, like I have to read books or magazines or, or, or um, I'm gonna use a phrase. Okay, we used to call this church porn, okay? And, and here's what we meant by that. It's a, like a bunch of magazines and a bunch of conferences where you go and you just say, who's got the biggest church? And all it does is just create a bunch of insecurities and pastors across the country thinking that the only way I'm successful is if I build the church. And then you have to start making decisions based upon whether or not you're going to continue to build it because now your identity is built on that. And then it gets really easy along the way to start making decisions that chip away at that. And then you start changing doctrine a little bit and you start um, molding a little bit this way and you start like um, um, doing things like hiring like donor relations people at your church to cater to people who can give the most. And you like you do all of this stuff because it's all built under this idea that it's my job instead of his job. And then eventually it begins to weed its way out and through the body. But if you just stop for a second and go, it's his church, not mine. This is way easier. I'm going to stand up and speak truth. And it doesn't mean we don't try and it doesn't mean we don't care. But it does mean that we know where ultimate responsibility lies with Christ. And then it's easier for us to just operate as the church that Jesus came to plant. When Jesus says, or when I say that Jesus is ultimately concerned with his church, I think first and foremost, yeah, it means that he's concerned about his church. Okay, I also think that what it means is that he has strategies to grow it. Like he already knows what he wants to do. And so what our job then is simply to like just humble ourselves and say, God, how do you want to build your church right now? It's 2021, you already know that. We're post-COVID, like you already know that. But like, what do you want to do right now? Like, how do you want your church built? And so my job then is to, um, is to just submit to the Holy Spirit. I think this is all of us to just submit to the Holy Spirit, the ultimate builder, and say, God, what do you want to do? And it seems right now that the method that God wants to employ is just like simple preaching of truth. Like just get up there and preach the truth. And if that, like if you do that, then I'll, I'll work through that. Like it seems to be how he's working right now right? And, and, and just submitting to him and asking him. It means he can come up with the strategies. Our job is just to find them. I know this because when I'm tasked with building something, what do I do? I look for the best way to build it. And Jesus said, I'll build it, which means he must have ideas on how to build it. So let's go find them from him. I think there's also under this is the idea then that Jesus just thinks about his church day and night. He just thinks about it day and night. Because don't you think about the thing day and night that you've been tasked to build, especially when you're excited about it and you love it? You started the new business and you're just working at it, you're working at it, you're working at it. You're in a growth season and it's so exciting and you're working at it and you're working at it and you're working at it. You got a new hobby and you're doing it every day, every day, every day and you're thinking about it and you're like, oh, if I just did this, I would improve my swing a little bit and I might get a better score. Like you're constantly watching YouTube videos and you're doing this because you're so excited about the thing. And like your spouse doesn't even have to ask you, like, what are you doing? Because they know what you're doing. Because you're that excited about it. Jesus is excited about his church. That's what gets Jesus excited. He's excited about his church. He's thinking about it. It means when you wake up at 2 a.m., right? Like, it might be weird to text your coworker this idea that you have about the business, but it's not weird to get into a prayer with God that says, like, hey, God, what do you think about this? And when we understand that the ecclesia is a movement, this doesn't just have to be like, what do you think about what happens in a redemption church building? But it could be like, God, what, what about what you want to do in me in this group of people? Because the church is always on the move because that's how we set it up as an ecclesia, not a temple or a synagogue. And he's excited about it. And he's infusing his life into it. Like, this is great for an addict like me. Like back when I did currency trading, I would get depressed at 3.01 every Friday because the market was closed until 3 o'clock on Sunday, 48 hours, right? Like depressed. This is not like a good example, okay? It's not healthy, right? That's why they created cryptocurrency. So all the addicts would have something to do all of the time, okay? Never closes. This though, 
And the church is the most healthy addiction. I mean, like at any moment, I can just wake up and be like, Jesus, what do you want to do in your church? Jesus, how do you want to move in people? And why? Like, why is Jesus concerned like this? Because the church bears his name. Like, I know we put redemption on the, you know, sign out front. Right? And I know there's names for churches all over, and you can pretty much pick what decade a church was founded based on the name. Right? Try it someday. Like, I know we put names on them, but ultimately, the church bears his name. And when your name is on something, you care what people think about it. Most of you know that I have a business interest out of here. The other day, Lindsay and I were getting ice cream about 45 minutes away. And Lindsay was like, did you see that guy's band? I was like, no. She was like, he's wearing a band. And I was like, where did he go? So I'm like walking around the restaurant, like looking in, opening up the bathroom. Sorry, sir. You know, like just like looking for this band because I wanted to ask this guy, like, hey, what did you think? Why? Because that in part reflects my name and I want to know what you think. And the church bears Jesus's name. And so he cares about it. And he cares about what we say in it. And he cares about what we do in it. And he cares about how we operate it. It bears his name and it doesn't just bear his name. It reflects his father. Like it bears his name and it reflects his father whom he loves. And so of course he's concerned about it. And not only is he concerned about it because it bears his name and it reflects his father, but it is also his only plan. It's his only plan. Like he had one plan to redeem the world and it was through his church. Through his church. That was his plan. Oh, and we know how much he loves humanity. He gave up his life for sinful humanity. Took on the wrath of God on the cross for sinful humanity. And he had one plan then for sinful humanity to be redeemed. And it was his church. Of course he's concerned about it. Are you? Are you? Are you concerned with this church? Like Christ is concerned with this church. Second thing I think that this statement, I will build my church, teaches us about Jesus. is not that he's just concerned with it in general, but that he's concerned in particular in how it's built. He's concerned in how it's built. Because you and I would be concerned about how something was built if it was ours to build. So he's concerned with, with how it's built. And, and, and I think then in this case, that the temple... Well, if we go in chronological order, the tabernacle and then the temple are actually foreshadows of the building of the first church. And I told you, like earlier, that Jesus didn't say he was going to build his temple and his tabernacle, but it doesn't mean that they aren't foreshadows or hints of how he wants his church built. And so we can look back at the tabernacle and the temple and see how they were built, and we can learn then the principles that God wants to apply into the building of his church, and they just so happen to coincide with the principles of the first church. And so Jesus is deeply concerned about how his church is built. Now, if we go back and look at how the tabernacle was built, which was basically just the first portable church, okay, if we go back and look at how the tabernacle was built and the temple, but particularly right now the tabernacle, this is the part of scripture that many of you just like flip through in your year in a reading plan. You get to that part in Exodus and you're like, yep, I read it, yep. And you're like, why is this in here? Why is this necessary? I don't care how many stones were used or bricks. And you read it and you just skim through it wondering why is it in there? And the first thing you see is that when it came to the tabernacle and the temple, Jesus was meticulous on how he wanted it built. Meticulous. This way, that way, use this stone, use that type, use this color. And he was particularly meticulous about the building, the furniture, and the clothing. Right? And we see this in the temple as well. And he's very meticulous about these things. Build it this way. Furnish it this way. Make sure their temp or the priest's clothes are like this. And maybe you've wondered, well, why? 
Why? And here's what goes wrong, by the way, and sometimes um, it goes really wrong and it almost becomes like quasi-spiritual abusive, is that we look at the meticulousness of the, um, uh, of the ta- tabernacle and the temple, and then we try and apply it to the modern church. And what we think is we need to be equally meticulous about the building and the clothing and the furniture, just like they were back then, because that was the model. No, it wasn't the model. It was a foreshadow of the model. And what we need to see is that we're not supposed to be meticulous about the building and the clothing and the furniture. We're supposed to be meticulous about what the building and the furniture and the clothing were pointing to. And what were they pointing to? Jesus and the gospel and his mission. That's why it's in there. It's not in there so that we worship a building or so that we set up furniture a certain way. Some of you think the phrase Sunday best is in the Bible. It's not. You can wear whatever you want to church, okay? Like, I don't care. Well, you know, (laughs) be socially appropriate, okay? But God doesn't care. David danced in front of him naked. Don't do that. I'm going to wear shorts one day this summer just so somebody leaves. He doesn't care. It's not disrespectful. It's religious when you think that what you're wearing impresses God. You know what he cares about? What's going on in here? That's what he cares about. Doesn't mean we don't take care of the building. It doesn't mean we don't steward it well. It doesn't mean all of these things, right? But it doesn't mean, right? Or it does mean that we don't worship We're not meticulous about those things in that way. What are we to be meticulous about? We're to be meticulous about the building, which represents Christ, which is the doctrine of Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we need to be meticulous about who we say Jesus is. That's why I preached a sermon I preached last week. We have to be meticulous about Jesus. We have to be meticulous about the gospel. Because Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes into to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so we have to be meticulous about the gospel. We can't change the gospel. Paul said, you change the gospel, it loses its power. He says, if somebody else changes the gospel, I don't care who they are, curse them. He says, if I change the, the gospel, curse me. We have to be meticulous about the gospel. We can never become ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel is pretty simple. Man is born into sin. Sin separates us from a holy God. The holy God sent his perfect son down to earth who lived a perfect life, who was fully God and fully man, died a death on the cross, was the substitutionary atonement for our sins, then rose triumphantly out of the grave three days later so that you and I could walk in spiritual freedom. That's the gospel. Paul's like, this is all I got. Come back next week. And then we got to be meticulous about the mission. What's the mission? The way we say it around here is to help all people experience redemption and live in freedom. The way Jesus said it was to go, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the mission? To advance the gospel. To advance the gospel. That's the mission. Now, there are outcomes when we accomplish the mission, like love for one another, service to our community, taking care of each other's needs. But those are outcomes, not the mission. Those are outcomes. Should the church that believes the gospel do all of those things? Yes. But does the presence of those things necessitate that we're operating out of the gospel? No. There's a lot of very good organizations that do those things that don't believe in the gospel. Christians start with the gospel. We unify around the gospel. Our power is the gospel. And then the gospel inside of us compels us to do those things. And we can't mix up outcomes and purpose. Okay? And we have to be meticulous about that. Because that's how Christ builds things, meticulously. There's some pretty crazy stories in the Old Testament when they operated outside of the meticulousness of the building. 
In the New Testament church, I think that is reserved not for, oh, that guy moved the couch, right? But, oh, that person's not preaching Jesus anymore. Built meticulously. The second thing you look at the tabernacle, you, I, I just picked the three that, that seemed to be the most obvious between tabernacle, temple, and first church. The first was the meticulousness of it. Go read it for yourself. You'd say, well, where's your scripture? Half of the Old Testament, okay? Read it for yourself. The, the second one that was obvious in all three is that the church was built through the generosity of the saints, like stupid, ridiculous generosity of the saints. Like in the tabernacle, Moses gets up and he's like, hey guys, we got to do this thing and we got to build this thing. And at some point he goes, okay, stop, too much money. And the moment we get there, I'll say the same thing, okay? Too much, stop. We haven't got there yet. Tabernacle was built by the radical generosity of the community of saints. Temple, same thing. Solomon, who was the leader, who's actually a picture of Christ, but is also human, he, he like went first and he was like, I'll give a bunch. And then all of everyone else out of Solomon, uh, um, um, example, they all stepped up and they all just started giving like crazy, like crazy, like crazy. Google how much it costs to build Solomon's temple. It's an expensive, if it really was 3,500 square feet, okay? Whew, expensive radical generosity. And then we get into the first church, and it's even more ridiculous than that. And they just tell stories about the, the radical generosity uh, of the first church. And, and one guy had a field, and he looked at his field, and he was like, that field's not doing anything, but those people are hungry. I'll sell the field, and I'll take care of them. Then there was this group of women. Love it. Paul goes into Europe, okay? He goes into Europe and he's like, okay, I got to do this thing, but it costs money. And there's a whole bunch of rich women. And they're like, well, good for you. We don't have husbands, but we do have money. And Paul's like, this is great. And they fund his church. And it was always through the generosity of the saints that the church was funded. And it's not a forced generosity. It's not a force. And some of you, you've been coming here for a long time. And here's what you've never told me to do. Make sure you give before you leave. Some of you have been coming around here for a long time. And here's what you've rarely heard me talk about, the tithe. And some of you, it bugs you because you're like, why don't you talk about the tithe more? And I'm always like, because I'm only like 90% sure it's a new covenant thing. There's a math joke in there. Like I tithe, and, and Lindsay and I, we tithe on our income here and outside, and we, and we will, right? And I can give you a whole bunch of reasons why too, okay? But I'm only like, again, like 90% convicted that it is like an absolute new covenant thing. Because what I see in the new covenant is just so much more. And the church was always built on the radical generosity of the saints. By the way, this point ties back to the first point that when it's not my identity and it's not my ultimate responsibility, then I can have honest conversations like this. Because most of the conversations around the tithe in the church are you have to teach the tithe, otherwise you won't be funded properly. I'm like, well, maybe if I preach Jesus, we'll just be funded over abundantly. And the church was always built on the generosity of the saints. Stupid generosity. There is no shortage of ideas floating around this place. Ideas to build the kingdom. You guys fund it? We'll do it. Okay? Because that's how the church has always been built. Number three. Third way the church is built, and this is, again, this is in all three of them, like you just see it over and over and over again. Um, it is through the gifts of, of people. By the way, all of this happens through Holy Spirit-empowered people. Like the Holy Spirit just comes in, into people, and, and, and then they become the meticulous ones, and then, and then they become the generous ones, and then they become the gifted ones. And in the tabernacle and the temple era, the gifts were really funny, right? They're like, this guy was a mason. Okay, not a Freemason. It's a whole different thing, okay? This guy 
offended somebody. Okay, this stone cutters, masons, I, like I don't do construction. There's one like line in the Bible that was like, this guy made pretty things out of wood, right? Okay, and I was like, oh, we have one of those. We call him Jason, right? Like, like this, these were the gifts that were in the tabernacle and the temple era. And, these, and people would just say, oh, I can do this. I can sew things. I can do that, whatever, whatever. And then in the new covenant, okay, in the new covenant, it was like, okay, no, no, no. Now the gifts, you can read them in Romans 12 or in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, I believe. Um, you, can, you can read them there. And, and they're like, the gift of teaching, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, the gift of exhortation, the gift of encouragement, the gift of generosity, the gift of leadership, the gift of, I don't know which ones I've said already, but there are other ones that are listed there. Like they're in there and then those gifts become the gifts. Uh, and then there's another one in there, um, uh, like the gift of service, right? And, and, and then what's interesting now in the church, era that we live is we kind of operate out of both of them, right? And the church has just always been built through the gifts of the people. Just saying like, man, I got this gift and I want to use it. I've got this gift and I want to use it. Marriage tip. Guys, this is, this is working killer for me, okay? Lindsay's in here, so I'm ruining it, but... Whenever I start to pray for something, now I ask Lindsay if I'm allowed to pray for it. It's so good. Okay. I'm like, Lindsay, I want to pray for this. Am I allowed to pray for this? She's like, yeah, you can pray for that. I'm like, will you pray for it too? Yeah. Then I'm like, double whammy. Like, we're good. Okay. Because sometimes she's like, you can pray for it, but I know it ain't going to happen. So you're good. Just have fun. Talk to yourself. Right? Okay. So I was like, Lindsay, I want to preach more. Like, I just want to preach more. Because it's all I got to offer. <laughs> and I was like, can we just start praying about that? She's like, yeah, we'll start praying about that. It's like, cool. So we'll just start praying about that. I don't know what your gift is. But man, you just get to this place where you're like, I just want to use it more. 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 And then you get to a place where the gift is like, it's just a part of who you are. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you get paid. It doesn't matter if, it doesn't matter how much time. You're just like, I just want to use the gift because it's what I've got to give. It's what I've got to offer. And so the church was always built through Holy Spirit empowered people through their meticulousness and the right things, through their generosity, ridiculous generosity, stupid generosity, and then their giftedness. And you know what was most often true, by the way? that the people who were leading and the ones mentioned in the scriptures usually didn't just do one. They picked all three. Because when the Holy Spirit takes hold, he takes hold of everything. Takes hold of everything. Takes it all. Number three, third thing I think this teaches us about Jesus. He's concerned with his church. He's concerned about how his church is built. I think thirdly, he's concerned about who builds it. He's concerned about who builds it. Now, when I say this, some of you, little alarms start going off because you're like, oh, I've been in that place before where it's told that you couldn't because you did or not quite yet because you're not. Or like when people come to me and they're like, well, Stephen, where'd you get your seminary degree? I'm like, oh, you mean the one that's mentioned in the scriptures, the seminary degree mentioned in the scriptures? I'm like, in my basement with my Bible. That's where I got it. Okay? And people in church sometimes, mostly because it is out of bad exegesis that we think we're recreating the tabernacle or the temple, we come up with this list of rules, not biblical, on who's allowed to participate. Let me just give you a couple of examples of when I say Jesus cares about who built it, what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean, well, do you have a past? Do you have a past? And when I say past, I mean life before Christ. That's what I mean by past. Jesus does not mean, do you have a past? Like, like, like do you have a life before Christ? Because if you have a life before Christ and if it was filled with sexual immorality and it was filled with greed and it was filled with power hungriness and all of that kind of stuff, well, then you can't be a part of building now if you have a past. I think Jesus really wanted to refute this one. And so when he's up having a conversation with God about why the church hadn't expanded out of Jerusalem, God goes, why don't you pick the dude with the worst past? 
And so he comes down to heaven or down to earth and he goes, hey, Paul. Hey, Paul, you know how you're killing all of us right now? And Paul falls to the ground and goes, who are you? And he goes, oh, really? You don't even recognize my voice? You know everything about the scriptures and you don't even know my voice and all the scriptures are pointing to me anyway, sermon for another day, right? He's like, hey, Paul, not despite your past, but almost because of your past, I am picking you to be the most prolific builder in the history of my movements, right? So you got a past? Come on in. Let's go. We need you. You got building to do. Don't stop yourself. Now we got the past. The past has a cousin. It's called failure, okay? The past I'm defining as what you do before you met Christ. And sometimes the church loves people who have a past and they crucify people who have a failure because a failure is what happens when you know Christ. And so when you know Christ, you look and you go, well, you know, you had a good run. You had a good run, but you failed. And so now you need to stop. Let me just say this real quick in case anyone's confused. There is no biblical timeline for a restoration of somebody who has failed. It's not in there. I'm not saying there are social and practical ramifications and there's not even some wisdom things that you ought to apply in certain circumstances. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying biblically, there is no spiritual like, like reformation or like reform the person timeline. It just doesn't exist in the Bible. Like, remember when you were growing up playing Nintendo? Anybody? All of us? Okay, all right. Remember when you're playing Nintendo and you're playing Mario Brothers 1 and what happens? You get to level seven and you can't beat the stupid dark tree land, right? And so you die and then your game is over and you have to do what? They didn't have a continuation back then because they didn't know how to make it, right? And so you, you had to go, well, they kind of did, I'll get that in a second. So you had to go all the way back to the beginning. And a lot of us, this is how we live our faith. Oh man, I was climbing so good and then I, and then I fell and now I got to go all the way back to the beginning. And so I got to get the mushroom again. And at least this time I know where the hidden coin box is. And so now I have an extra life. And so like I, I tithe, so now I have an extra life. And now I, like, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. So now I have firepower, right? And so like, I'm going to make it through. This metaphor is gold if I played it all the way through, I promise. Okay, but then you get to level seven and you die and you think I got to start all over again and I still didn't get there. And then one day you were at Kroger and you saw the magazine and it said, if you hit A, B, 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 then you don't have to go back to the beginning. You can start right there where you left off. And so what did you do the next time you died? You broke two thumbs. A, B, 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 A, B. This was really just training for texting. A, B, 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 A, B. And you just did it. And the first time it worked, you felt like your world changed. I don't have to start back at the beginning. This is incredible. And that's how you thought Christianity worked. And it's even better than that. Because grace is that Jesus went A, B, 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 A, B for you. And every time he fall, you fall, he just picks you right back up and you don't do anything. And you get to start right back where you left off. And that's grace. I don't have to A-B. He did on the cross. Forever continuation. 100 lives. I'm done with the metaphor. You get it. Where was I? Failure. There's no spiritual timeline. There's grace. And I think Jesus wanted to prove this point too. And so he's like, you know, this is after he uh, arose from the grave and he's like, okay, who am I going to make my first pastor? Hmm. Who's going to be the first pastor that I commission? 
Ah, hey, Peter, come here. I'll give a modern twist on this. Remember when you failed miserably in front of everyone at the moment that you shouldn't have failed? Peter's like, yeah. And then Jesus asks him again. <laughs> and then again. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he goes, cool. I want you to be the first pastor. You think he's trying to show us something? The most prolific church builder had a past. The first pastor had a failure. And Jesus then used a whole bunch of other people who the world called common and uneducated. Morons. I will be in moron camp all day if it produces that. This is who Jesus used. He does care. And so you say, okay, so it's not about the perfect past, and it's not about never failing, and it's not about uh, my, my intellectual capacity or, or being perceived by the world as the right person. So what is it about? Glad you asked. Isaiah 66, here's where I'm going to end today, because this is, what, this, is, this is how Jesus ends, well, God ends, this little verse in Isaiah. He says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this, this, this is the one to whom I look. Let me say it another way. But this is who I am looking for to build my house. My house that he's deeply concerned about. His house um, uh, that he's thinking about all of the time. His house that he cares about how it's built. He says, this is who I'm looking for to build it. The one to whom I look is humble. 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 And humility just starts at looking at the cross and saying, I could have never been, but you were for me. And humility is just bowing under the holiness of Christ and being so grateful that he would impute that righteousness to you. And then humility is considering others more important than yourself. Being able to admit when you're wrong because you're not perfect. Seeking repentance when you mess up. Serving other people like Christ served us. He says, I want those people, the humble ones. Next line, he says, I want the contrite in heart. What does it mean to be contrite in heart? It means holiness. It means that sin just cuts you to the heart. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means when you do, it just, it cuts you. And it brings you to your knees. One of the best lessons I ever learned from a former mentor of mine was after we had been dealing with an issue with a staff member, I said, what do we need to do? And he said, oh, we don't need to do anything. Look how much the Holy Spirit has already done. And the contrite in heart, the Holy Spirit just comes in and cuts you to the heart when sin is present and begins to produce holiness. And so Jesus is looking for the humble and he's looking for the holy. And then the last thing he says, and those who tremble at my word. There's another verse that says, he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and truth. The, the third thing I think that he's looking for are those who are just hungry for the word of God. Just hungry for the word of God. Like, like, like I don't, I don't want to eat anything else anymore. I don't want to build my life around anything else. Like, I'm almost tired of doing everything else. Like, I just want God. Psalm 4, 7, you have put more in me than they have when their grain and wine abound. Like, like, I have feasted on all that the world has to offer, and I have found it meaningless. I have found it so empty. It has not satisfied my soul, but I have just tasted. I have just tasted the presence of God, and it fills so deeply. But even though it does, I want more and more and more. Before first service, we were all in the kitchen and somebody Googled the most amount of calories that have ever been eaten in a day. It will disgust you. 30,000. That's 187 bags of Doritos. 
We did the math. Josh Land, the bass player, was like, who's got Doritos? Okay. I mean, could you imagine working your way through the 187 bags of Doritos? And there's something about hungry and consumption where it's like you read or you listen or you hear and you get done and it's like the bag didn't even go through. You're just like, I just want more. I just want more. I prayed with a young man after service a couple of weeks ago and I was like, what do you want? He's like, I just want more. And he's like, I don't know what else to say. I just want more. Like, I just want more of God. I want more of his presence. I want more of his spirit. I want more truth. I want less of the world. Like, I'm just growing increasingly disgusting. Now I'm just talking out loud for myself. Like, I'm just growing increasingly disgusted with myself, where I love the world, where I act like the world, where I think like the world, and I just want more. Like, I just want more Jesus. I want, I just want to throw off all of these other weights that hold me back from just having more of him. Like I, 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 like I just wonder if some of you are there where you're just here and you're like, it's Wednesday and you're like, gosh, I can't wait for Sunday. By the way, the good news is the ecclesia is 24-7. But I know there's something special about when we all gather. And increasingly, I think we are becoming aware of the utter lack of fulfillment that the world has to offer. Rinse and repeat. Bought this, do this, do that, think this, experience that, whatever. And just finding ourselves in a place of saying, God, I just want more. And I'll be honest, I don't, I don't even know how to lead all of us into more right now, like what that means. But I think a place to start is humble, holy, and hungry. And if we just keep humbling ourselves before him, and if we keep increasingly desire holiness in our lives, and that will mean shifts in our behavior and language. And if we keep just saying, God, I just want more, then I think a Jesus who's deeply concerned with this church, how it's built and who builds it, will answer those prayers every time. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connectcard. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.